Today, we are hopping in the DeLorean and we are going all the way back. Yep, we are making the jump to 1985. The Decades series continues to roll. We're going back. We're, we're visiting with Marty McFly, with John Rambo, with Rocky Balboa, with Axel Foley, with The Crisis on Infinite Earths. There was a crisis in comics. It dominated the entirety of 1985. A new art hit the art scene. Arthur Adams. So much was going on. What was topping the charts in music, in television, in film, in comics? Go with us to 1985 on an all-new episode of Observations. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. This is the podcast where we uh, present lavish praise for all things comic books, comic book superheroes, whether they're movies, streaming shows, or in fact, the, the comic books that are the seed material for all of those things, the action figures, the statues, the merchandise. That, that This is a show that takes you all the way back, uh, going through my own comic book journey, which, which started in the very early 1970s which created a great career for me in comic books where I am able to write and draw and produce and publish comic books for the last 37 years. It, it, it floors me to say this, uh, but I am so excited each and every week to talk all things comic books with you. We started a series last year and we are returning to that series today with a really fun installment. We call them uh, Then and Now, and it's... it's uh, it's it's 1985, and we are going to look at at 1985, a time capsule of 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 an entire year of entertainment. So it goes beyond comics. It it it, it includes television and movies and music and all the things that were going on in 1985. What what happened in comics that changed the industry, that shaped the industry? What names? What influences? Also, again, in film television it is a great uh uh time to have been experiencing all of those things and it just so happened 1985 just so happened to be this the year i graduated high school 1985 senior year uh, a lot of you guys understand uh all of you um you know gentlemen and ladies understand that the senior year is uh by the time you get to january february i mean you're, you're just kind of running through the string you are just trying to just kind of run the clock out, get to graduation, move on with your life. That's that's that was my, my senior year. You know, you 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 don't kind of realize it at the time, but you've you've kind of put the work in. You've you've done everything you've you've uh, really set out to do, and now aside from a couple big papers and a couple big tests, you're you're just running out the string. I graduated at 17 years old uh, from a from a private school called Whittier Christian High School. We graduated in June of that year, and uh, what happened that that, that kind of sets off that year and, and, and changes it. And I've mentioned it several times here is that uh, I did not, I didn't, I did not so much even apply for one single uh, college, you know, application entry. My, my future was not going to be in education. Uh, I, I've, de- I've I've kind of gone gone through it before. It's it's not a problem. It, 
being being completely open and honest at the fact the fact that my family was flat broke. Well, Rob, how did they send you to a private school? My dad, being a uh, minister at the time, a Baptist minister, uh, had was given a, a deep discount by that private school to send me there, and they they put value on that. But also, one of the superintendents was a friend of my dad's, and I get I think we got an even deeper discount. But it was right around eighty four and eighty five that 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 the that the really the floor came out from under the Liefeld family, and things got a little tougher. And uh, my senior year. I am living with my sister. I am living on a pull-out uh, sofa couch in her in her uh, apartment. My parents had moved to Chicago, to Illinois, actually to a, to not not Chicago. I call it Chicago because obviously it's the most identifiable part of that entire region. It was in fact in Illinois, but it was in a way out borough, good seventy-minute drive called Waukegan, and that is where I would spend a good. Uh, season of my life after graduating, and <clears throat> that that becomes important to to my memories, given that the different comic stores and the different comic book uh, experiences and conventions that I'm able to attend while I'm in uh, the Illinois, Waukegan, Chicago area, and it was it really turned out to be I probably e- even though I, I I was not excited at hearing the news that that is where I was headed the day after I graduated high school, it provided a, a ton of great adventures and stories and growth for me personally. And, and again, that comes with all of these movies, these TV shows, these songs, and these comic books that we're going to share to share with you today. But upon, uh, my, my, my parents moved there because my dad took a job as an educator, as a superintendent of a school. The reason that I would then, uh, follow them out there the day after graduation and, and was informed of that with 48 hours notice. And, you know, literally it is, it is one of those, do not get out your violence for me. Uh, I, I dealt with that like anxiety all, all that time ago. I had a girlfriend, I had a group of great guy friends. Uh, I was ready to have my, my summer, my senior summer. My parents show up, uh, the night before I'm graduating for my family graduating party with my, my, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins. And my mom says, "Dad's tumors have have regrown. They're back, and and the the drama of the 1978-1979 brain tumors that put my dad in the hospital in a coma for nine months immediately sent like a a giant shockwave of trauma. And you're like, wait, what? And 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 so this exciting time uh, graduating is informed uh, by the fact that they need me to come and be with my dad post uh, surgery. My mom is going to continue to work all summer long." My dad is going to need recovery and they want me to be there day to day. So I said, I mean, what are you going to do? It's my dad. I'm, I'm, I'm his son. I'm their, their kid. So I said, okay, but it was really traumatic. Uh, I, I was like, just didn't, didn't have a whole lot of time. They had just gotten the news. They had just gotten the confirmation. Now the great news is there was uh, medicine and, and uh, surgery and all that stuff had, had uh, the technology had advanced so far beyond where it was in 1978, where because of a blood clot, uh, with his first brain surgery, he did get into a coma. We had these uh, amazing, you know, physicians. Uh, his name was Doctor Rambaldi, and and he was a G. This guy was incredible. I went with, you know, obviously uh, a couple of days before the the surgery, I went in. I was able to sit in and, and meet with the doctor because, uh, again, at 17 years old, I am I am immediately transplanted back to when I was, you know, nine and ten. And that completely just upended our family. So this is the reason that I am now boarding a plane 
And for the first time in my life, remembering what it's like to drive, I mean, to drive, excuse me, to fly on on a plane because I had not flown anywhere. We always did vacations that involved us driving to and fro, whether it was New Mexico or Arizona. We didn't do any lavish uh, vacations as a kid. My mom's best friend, they were regulars uh, twice a year, Hawaii. They did some really fun, fun trips. We kind of live vicariously through their stories, but we were more grounded again. You know, there's a, a base salary of, of, a, of a Baptist minister uh, in, in the 80s is not going to blow any way, uh, anybody away. We certainly weren't part of any sort of mega church, but it was my dad's passion. It's what he went to school for, and that's what he had done for all those many years. So he is in his uh, late 40s when this uh, occurs, and, and, uh, and, and, and he's going in for the second surgery. The great thing is he was home this time. In, in three days. So so not the, your dad is going to be a vegetable. Your dad isn't going to be in a coma. So I didn't have to deal with any of that. Like, and trust me, there was, there was a lot of fear cursing through all of us because all, cursing through all of us in the family, because all we had known, you know, was, was that, that 1978 nightmare where uh, he was in the hospital for nine months. I fly to uh, Waukegan, Illinois, and I am immediately due diligence uh, you know, doing my stuff, tending to my father and, and kind of learning, uh, just feeling out what's new in this new environment. Cause I've never lived anywhere else other than, you know, Orange County, Southern California. And it, it was an interesting time. Again, I, 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 I had a girlfriend, I had great friends, but boom, said goodbye, flew, uh, f- flew to, flew to Illinois, started this life that I would have until September when I would come back, uh, you know, to Southern California and, 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 and kind of begin my, <laughs> begin my post high school existence as all my friends were going to college. But trust me, I was not interested in college. Not only could we not afford it, um, I just had no, no propensity to, to be a, a good student. I struggled to even get through high school, but I was happy, got my diploma, uh, and, and, and headed on my way. And now I was spending that summer uh, in, in Illinois and met, met some new friends. My, my parents had a, uh, a couple of, uh, they had some couples with, with sons and, and one, two brothers in particular became, uh, ways that I kind of worked all of this stuff out. But when I tell you about the movies of that summer and the songs of that year, especially that summer and the comic books, they're going to be coming from that particular focus. So the comic book world in 1985, whether it was in Southern California or Waukegan, Illinois, was determined by one giant event. There was one event that rocked the comic book world and is, is still being referenced today. I did a, I did a um, podcast with another, with another show that's coming up soon, and the discussion of crisis was kicked off. It was crisis on infinite earths. It was the culmination of a ton of marketing and, and planning. And big buzz that DC Comics had really set the stage for in the months and years prior. Uh, you you heard the thunder rolling of, uh, about Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was the reset that DC was going to do because they had multiple. Okay, honestly, what am I talking about? They had multiverses. You guys all understand now. The mainstream is so well educated on multiverses. I had a friend of mine text me during the uh, dur- during the Knicks. Miami Heat game just just recently and said, "Oh my gosh, these how many multiverses are we going to have to sit through?" 
And it just made me laugh because multiverse was the domain of the like utmost comic book nerd level understanding and awareness. But now that the, you guys all understand that really a multiverse is just walking through a portal and being dropped into another, you know, existence. So, so Crisis on Infinite Earth was meant to course correct DC, to mainstream them and to bring Earth's A, B, C, D, E, Z, you know, Earth Prime, all of these different Earths, uh, count, count all of these different Earths. Um, I was about to say counter Earth, but that is Marvel's, uh, Marvel's kind of alternate, alternate Earth, not DC's. But DC had a lot of different Earths. That's how you got an older Superman from World War II. All the World War II heroes, the Justice Society, lived on another Earth. And Earth 2, in fact, where it, which is where you got, which is how DC had dealt with the fact that we don't want to let go of these Silver Age incarnations of these characters. So we're going to keep them alive and we're going to do so via Earth 2. Now, my generation grew up being ridiculously well-educated on this because the Justice League, the flagship DC comic, each and every year, and I've covered this on other podcasts, so forgive me if this is uh, not fresh for you, but they would have annual team-ups with the Justice League of America. They would portal in, they would teleport them in to have a dinner, to have a meal, to have a party with the Justice Society, which was the older Superman, the older Green Lantern, the older uh, Jay Garrick as the Flash, uh, instead of Barry Allen at the time. And so they would come over and of course they would have adventures because of course they would get attacked uh, upon arriving. Or sometimes the Justice League would teleport to Earth 2 to hang out with just the Justice Society. So we were really well-versed in, in, in Earth 2 because they'd always give you a blurb. Earth 2 is where, you know, this set of heroes and existence and timeline runs, uh, which is parallel but not same to this. And, and, and we understood that our Earth 1 was where the primary uh, DC superhero universe took place with the rejuvenated Teen Titans that Marv Wolfman and George Perez had introduced with you know the monthly the regular monthly adventures of Hal Jordan of Barry Allen of of Batman of Superman so crisis was going to course correct because there was way more than earth 2 there was earth s there was all, all manner of different earths with different existences and they were going to mainstream them and by the end of this you were going to get one earth and one new continuity that's what it promised and let me tell you something getting there was the fun crisis on infinite earths was a magnum opus still seen as the greatest crossover of all time and for all the reasons that Marv Wolfman and George Perez worked out that stuff to a T. It is exciting. It is a page turner. It is gripping. It is extremely well illustrated. Uh, middle of the series, Jerry Ordway, who was an accomplished penciler and inker on his own, was teamed with George and they made a brand new style that was some George, Jerry Ordway, some George Perez. George really seemed to like it. George would pencil and ink all of his own covers. But uh, from issue seven on, Jerry Ordway carries, uh, carries the artistic burdens alongside George Perez. And they get this sucker to the finish line. And that double-sized conclusion that came out at the end of 1985 was, you know, highly anticipated, maybe one of the most anticipated DC books that had been out in years. 1985 was really the, 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 the time that things were turning in DC's favor as they looked to directly compete with Marvel, who was absolutely 100% the, the market standard, the, the, the gold standard of comic books. Marvel was dominating, and they had just wrapped up their 
giant crossover secret wars now both secret wars and crisis get a whole lot more focus in separate dedicated podcasts in the library of podcasts that we have in raw observations so i'd invite you to go back and 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 and, and sift through those listen to those that, that especially secret wars gets a lot more um focus because secret wars had ended secret wars kind of ran 84 all of 84 maybe touched and kissed at the end of 85 but 85 belonged to crisis on infinite earth secret wars 2 would launch in the summer of 1985 and and just by comparison was just not up to snuff. Al Milgram on his best day is not going to compete ever with the artistic mastery, wizardry, and uh, style and influence of George Perez. So it was a rough uh, comparison, but Secret Wars 2 did great because it was Marvel and it was Marvel heroes gathering for a sequel to their giant Secret Wars uh, crossover, which ran 12 issues. Had some double side, uh, uh, d- d- double sized issues, and it was really part of a uh, dedicated toy spinoff from Mattel, and that's really where the roots of Secret Wars were. And Secret Wars turned turned sales expectations for Marvel, uh, like like pushed it to a new level. It 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 it, it flipped the script for them. So it was a giant, uh, you know, barometer for hey, like catch us here, catch our Secret Wars sales. Well, Crisis did not catch those sales because Marvel was a big deal. But the industry's attention was pulled to crisis as the event of 1985. It did not miss a beat. It came out each and every month and it was pulse pounding in its excitement and in the way that it uh, really pulled the rug out from under us as readers because it promised, to sh- it, 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 it promised shock and awe and it gave us shock and awe. And by the time I get to Illinois, and into in, into Waukegan, I am five issues in to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, now issue six, the the cover got released to the fan press, and you saw Superman holding a very damaged, a very wounded Supergirl with all the other characters crying um, behind her. This image, which has uh, of the hero carrying of the hero uh, that that it, that is carrying. The, the 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 fallen comrade the fallen uh you know partner that he, that that image had been seen often it had been seen often and 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 one of the most uh popular versions of that was was from from a batman issue that particular batman issue that particular image uh many many cite an early 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 version of it as Batman 156 with Batman carrying a very looking very dead very damaged very very severely wounded Robin uh Batman 156 center figure uh full figure Batman arms outstretched very sullen very 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 just distraught holding Robin who whose arms are you know flailing and and and, and legs are you know look look limp and lifeless in his hands it is it is a uh, people go, oh, it's Michelangelo. No, the Michelangelo one is, that person is seated, okay? They're seated on a chair. This this image also, Kirby would use it for an image of Thor. Uh, John Byrne famously uh, uses it on 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 the, the, you know, classic X-Men issue where Cyclops is holding Phoenix and crying out in the X, and the X-Men are gathered behind him. Well, George took it to the next level. Uh, the, 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 
John Byrne Phoenix one was a was a really big deal. Okay, it was a really big deal. I I, I believe it's it's uh, the cover to one thirty six, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But but the John Byrne X Men issue with Cyclops holding the limp, lifeless body of Phoenix as if she has been defeated, which then leads us into the you know culmination of the Dark Phoenix saga. That was a big cover. George takes it one step further, and Superman, Supergirl, he puts, good God, is it 60? How many characters behind him did they put? I was asked by Marvel to replicate that cover with Cable and Deadpool down to the exact people behind them in like 2009. And I was like, oh my gosh, I I accepted the assignment and was like immediately like crushed by the detail that had to go into that homage. But Crisis on Infinite Earth 6, Feature the death of Supergirl. You know, th- this this book's been out like, I mean, come on. <laughs> this book's been out over 40 years. 40 years, is it? 85, 95, 2005, 15. Okay, just under 40 years. Just under four. You have had time to figure this one out. You have had time to figure out. And, and so spoiler alerts are not necessary. Uh, Supergirl dies. And that was supposed to be the culmination of everything. And then the next issue, Crisis 7, and this is where like they really pile-drived you. You would not believe that a death was going to follow a tragic death. But Crisis on Infinite Earth 7, they kill Barry Allen. They kill the Flash. And it is one of the greatest triumphant, sacrificial you know, uh, uh, stories and deaths in comics ever. It is, it is fantastic. It is epic. And the thing was, they doubled up on you. They thought, well, you're, you're not going to be you know, expecting a death after a death. And it is up there with the death of Electra, the death of Phoenix. I think it's superior to the death of Supergirl because she, as popular as she was, was a, a, not a headliner in the way that Flash, who represented the entirety of the greatness of the Silver Age. I mean, he was an important character, Barry Allen as the Flash and killing him was a big deal. Now, I experienced this, uh, by looking up in the yellow pages and seeing what was the closest comic store to me. And I didn't really want to drive into the city. Uh, I, w- I was fresh. I was new to all of that traffic. And even in Orange County, Southern, Ca- Southern California, I wasn't doing a lot of freeway driving. And as a 17-year-old, uh, only, only driving for a year, I, I, I just didn't want to go into the heart of the city and to all those great comic book stores. And I, and I found a comic store that was about 65 minutes from where we were living in Waukegan. And the cool thing is, man, for about 25 minutes, you are on just a lonely, uh, you know, one way, I mean, I mean, two, two, two lane, two lane highway. And I would get to this comic store. I, the, the name of the store, uh, you know, I, 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 I have long since uh, forgotten the name of the store, but it was like a, when you got there, it was like an isolated, what you would think of like a CVS, a drugstore. It was a big store, a big piece of property. But it it was it looked like the guy had bought a drugstore and had refashioned it as a used books and comic book store, and he had everything I needed, and I could not been have been more pleased to make that drive. I started making it every two weeks just because of the uh, length of the drive and and the and the commitment to a three three and a half hour trip. Given that you know drive an hour, spend an hour in the store, drive an hour back, probably stop and, and get lunch, but. I was coming back with armfuls of comic books because that, that's how I coped that summer. The few friends that I made uh, from the different connections weren't always available. Uh, they, they were traveling and having vacations with their families, doing their own. They had summer jobs. And again, my job was to tend to my dad, my, my father and help him 
full recover, uh, you know, in, in, in the, in the daytime hours. And so occasionally, you know, I would get out during the weekends and the weeknights. And that's when we're, when we are going to get to all these crazy, amazing films that came out in the summer of 1985. But as far as comic books and DC comics, crisis, crisis on infinite others just dominated the landscape. I was, I was fortunate enough because I was in Waukegan, because I was in the Chicago, you know, area, Illinois, and uh, well within driving distance, and having networked through a fan club that I was part of in the in Teen Titans, I was able to attend for the very first time the Chicago Comic Con. And some of you know how how it feels to have read those ads, seen those advertisements year in year out for you know a comic convention that looked as big as any that you'd ever attended, but. It was like inconceivable in, in, in regards to how you're going to get there. It just didn't seem practical. And it was beyond like the, 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 the uh, average favor that you would ask of your parents. But here I am, I'm in the backyard. And again, I had networked with a bunch of guys who actually lived in different parts of Illinois and one in Wisconsin who was driving in for the Chicago Comic-Con 1985. And I was able to uh, attend that show all three days. Uh, you know, bunked up with, with two other guys. We split a hotel room, uh, sharing, sharing time, sleeping on the floor. Uh, it was, it was an absolute blast. And, and DC came big to that show because they knew they had a big ticket in crisis on infinite earths, all manner of cool comic book artists and, and, and writers were there. And having been to, at that time, uh, three or about to attend my third San Diego Comic-Con because I would attend San Diego Comic-Con in 1985 in my one trip home that my parents uh, bought for me to go back and see my friends in the middle of the summer. I was able to book San Diego and go to that for two days and experience that as well. And that was like my big, oh, as a fan. Now, now as, as, as a pro, I have done way more than a twofer, but that was a big twofer that year, my first. Like, wow, I got two comic conventions, two of the major national comic conventions in one summer due to just the proximity of where I was living. But Marv Wolfman, the entire team, Jerry Ordway, uh, they showed up to promote uh, the, the work that they were doing on, on Secret Wars and, I'm sorry, Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Marvel showed up to promote their Secret Wars 2 and their new titles. But let me tell you something. 1985 artistically, really stylistically, is defined by two guys. I've already mentioned George Perez and all the work that he put into pulling off the artistic vision of Crisis on, on Infinite Earths, and all power to Marv Wolfman for, for co-writing that and, and creating that story and crafting that with George. But it is the artwork that blew people away. It is the artwork that people were clamoring for and seeing George draw everybody under the sun for DC Comics. He wanted to draw every single character, and to my knowledge, at that time, he did. He left no stone unturned. At the same time, DC was also putting out its, its handbook called Who's Who? which would go A to Z, all of the different characters in the uh, DC universe. And George was doing wraparound covers to that. George would tell you, oh, how busy I am. I cannot believe how busy I am, you know, producing all this work, but I have to get Crisis out. I have to get Who's Who out. And uh, so that was, that was just an amazing artistic achievement. And, and George being one of the most popular artists of his time was driving uh, that entire endeavor. But at Marvel, there was, there was another name that really defined 1985. It was Art Adams, Arthur Adams. I've done an entire podcast on the incredible significance of 1985 to Arthur Adams. 
but you have no idea what he really meant for Marvel Comics and for all of the future of comics because kids like me were clamoring onto his art style and looking to replicate it as fast as we possibly could. Arthur Adams uh, launched in 1985, in June of 1985, Longshot, the long gestating uh, miniseries that he had been drawing. And for those of us who were seeing Art Adams on the convention circuit, as far back as 1983, two years prior, we saw him drawing Longshot. He had pages. He would bring issues in Xerox form to show you this is what I have coming out. And and me and my, my fanboy buddies would just flip out like, when is this being published? And he'd always be like, you know, when I'm done because I'm slow. He was always, he always led with, you know, I'm slow. I, I, I've been working on this for years. Um, you know, when it's done, they're going to print it. Well, 83 turned into 84, turned into the middle of 85, and Longshot was finally released. Longshot came out each and every month. The, uh, a six-issue uh, miniseries that culminated with a giant uh, double-sized issue. It was the birth of the Mojo universe, the character of Mojo, who would then be co-opted into the X-Men universe as one of their um, regular nemesis and villainous presences. Uh, is, is presences a word? A, a villainous presence. Mojo and and so many of the, uh, the, the characters from Longshot would be so popular they would spin into the X-Men existence, X-Men continuity. But that's not what hit it out of the park for, for Art Adams. It was that the entire time that Longshot was being published, he had already completed the job. So he had already accepted the new assignment, which was the New Mutants uh, special edition, summer special edition that came out uh, in, in the summer of 1985, which dovetailed into the X-Men annual that came out in the fall of 1985, both uh, penciled by Art Adams, and all total, when you get those six long shot issues, which let's put somewhere, you know, at eighty pages. Again, with then another basically eighty to to eighty five pages, you got this culmination of like one hundred and sixty pages by Arthur Adams, and um, you know, m- my math is 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 completely like shifty because now I have to co I have to co edit it and six times 22 uh, is, is, is in the 124 range, but long shot six was double page double sided. So, so let's go 140, then let's go 60. That's 200. No, you got 200, about 230 pages of Arthur Adams in 1985. And anytime you get that volume of pages and you wedge in Two of the most popular um, assignments of that year, the New Mutants annual that dovetails into the X-Men, and X-Men is the number one selling book at Marvel. And X-Men at that time in the summer of 1985, produced, drawn, illustrated by John Romita Sr., John Romita Jr., Jr., John Romita Jr. alongside Chris Claremont, was, it was hitting its marks. It was their number one book. But I'm going to just take it from me, take it from me as a 17-year-old fan uh, of the X-Men who grew up on the Burn, Austin, the Cockrum stuff. And, and, and we got razzle-dazzled in 1982 with this phenomenon, phenomenal penciler called Paul Smith, that the John Romita Jr. era was uh, more of a treading of water. Chris was not as excited because Chris gets turned on by artists. I have seen him, uh, you know, 
really get cozy with 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 the new talent that arrives on the scene, whether that is Art Adams or Rick Leonardi, or because he's like he rubs shoulders and gets so excited, he's like a kid at Christmas time, like ooh, what magic are we going to produce? Ramita Junior uh, was hitting his marks, keeping keeping the X Men monthly. It was a weird time for talent at Marvel. Walt Simonson was playing out the string, finishing his artistic con- contributions to Thor, right as he was about to pivot to just writing Thor. And, and Salvi Semo would be doing more of the art chores. John Byrne was was literally, you know, about six, seven months away from leaving uh, Marvel Comics and going to DC, upon which he would do his giant Superman reboot. George Perez was doing Crisis. So he, you know, he hadn't been at, at Marvel in five years. And in the fan favorite category, Titans took the biggest hit because George went and did crisis titans was kind of rudderless without him teen titans is 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 one of those books like alpha flight and maybe some other books that i'm familiar with that it really only worked with that first team that you fell in love with x-men had had transcended all of that because it had so much greatness over like a eight-year decade long period with dave conkram to john Byrne back to dave conkram to then you know paul smith that i mean like eight years of just absolute artistic excellence the top talents in the industry and now it was just kind of a um a decent comic i don't believe i've I've said this before Uh, john ramita jr on daredevil on street level heroes is perfect a plus 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 on kick-ass a plus 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 i wrote the foreword to the kick-ass uh hardcover i know what it feels like to be in love with john ramita jr's vision i just don't believe he is a guy cut out for um, maybe the spectacle and the gloss that is the X-Men universe. And as a fan, I felt that. And when I look back at those books, they have not appreciated. They just, they, they, they give me the same kind of shrug at the time. X-Men uh, fandom was ready to be razzled and dazzled by highly detailed, slick artwork, the kind of which we fell in love with, with John Byrne, Terry Austin, Paul Smith, all of those guys. Well, art delivered. He absolutely 1,000% delivered, and those annuals shook the comic book universe. And the artistic style that he put forth carried into myself, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri, uh, you name it, and beyond another generation with J. Scott Campbell, Dan Frega, Marat, um, all these guys. Art's impact cannot properly be measured. And people go, oh, no, he got it from Michael Golden. No, Michael Golden is an absolute influence on Art Adams' work. But so is Walt Simonson and Mike Kaluta and so many others that Art kind of, and Barry Windsor Smith, Art deciphered kind of into this style of his, 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 his style, very unique style of his own. I've talked about the very long legs, the short trunks, the broad shoulders, the kind of the, the, the Popeye forearms, we bit on all of that. When people ask me where I got a lot of my stylistic tics, I got them from Art Adams, that Art Adams. He has developed into a different style since then. The stuff that he did in 1985 is just phenomenal. It is, it is uh, just the, the, the most pretty, the prettiest people, the, the most dynamic figures, faces, environments, crazy amounts of incredible hyper detail. And, and we all just went crazy over it. So, I've talked about this on a dedicated, you know, uh, uh, podcast about how this all worked out for Arthur Adams because all of those years in creating Longshot one through six, 
It didn't matter once they were released. You, the fan, didn't know because you living in Wisconsin or Idaho or Wyoming or or some you know some borough in New Jersey did not know uh, that Art had been drawing this, and you probably didn't catch him on the convention scene, and you didn't see the pages as they were you know being put together and the issues as they were being compiled. He'd show up with now issue three and then issue four. And you didn't, you didn't, you weren't able to kind of, you know, appreciate that. He just arrived and he thought, who's this new guy? And he's coming out monthly. Long shot. One, two, three, four, five, six. Boom, boom. Without, without hiccup, they, they were released. And in the between, you got a 60, you know, page, 60, like giant size, uh, New Mutants edition and X-Men annual. And it was incredible. And that summer, and I've told this story often in San Diego, they were scrambling to hand out pages for the last, basically, third of that X-Men annual that takes place in Asgard with the X-Men in Asgard looking for the new mutants. Honestly, you, you can just tell Chris got so excited, artistically turned on at the, at, at the idea of working with Art Adams coming off of Longshot that he just packed in so much amazing story concepts and ideas. Again, Chris rises to the excitement level that he feels for the artist that he's working with. And those pages, those penciled pages of Art Adams were being handed out to Joseph Rubenstein, to Al Gordon, to Mike Mignola, who was Art's friend and was also launched his career as an inker at Marvel Comics, to a gentleman named Art Nichols. Uh, Many people were grabbing these pages and being asked to do them upstairs in their hotel room and return them to the Marvel booth the very next day. Um, so that they could continue the process and get those to color and 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 get that book out. And as a fan, I waited there. And I've recounted this, and I love recounting this. I waited there in the summer of 85 in San Diego at the Marvel booth the next day as those inkers would show up, as Al Gordon would pull out the pages that he did in his hotel room that night, that morning, as Joseph Rubenstein got to the convention's floor at 3.30 and said, I, I did these pages for you. And they're great pages. The page where Storm holds up the hammer and three-quarter splash page. That's inked by Joseph Rubenstein over Art Adams. I saw it in pencil. I saw it in ink. It's so phenomenal to watch a comic book like that come together in the manner that that did. But Art Adams, George Perez were the two biggest artistic splashes because like I said, John Byrne was tired. He had been going on high-level octane output for 10 years. Walt Simonson, ditto. Uh, uh, Howard Chaikin was was now doing kind of special projects. Uh, George was engulfed over at DC with Crisis. Uh, you 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 really didn't have the birth of uh, of of the Rick Leonardi stuff uh, in the way that that would gain traction doing X Men work. You didn't have Mark Silvestri. He was certainly lurking and doing work, but he wasn't exploding as he would a couple of years later on X Men. Certainly, uh, uh, my my group was was not yet completely ensconced. In, in, in the big two, Eric Larson was out there doing work. He was doing work for Megaton. He was getting into independent gigs. And Todd McFarlane had taken over Infinity Inc. in 1985. So he got his first regular assignment and, and, and did de- uh, uh, a book, another teen superhero book along the lines of Teen Titans called Infinity Inc. And he was doing that for DC Comics. So it was... Uh, Interesting year artistically. It was it was the beginning of the changing of the guard. You had one of the greatest icons of the Bronze Era uh, spiking the ball with Crisis on Infinite Earths, which again 
lived up to all the giant summer blockbuster uh, uh, hubbub, you know, the, the, the hype. You know, this was back in the day when blockbusters were always released only in summer. You didn't have March and April release dates. You certainly didn't entertain fall release dates. It was Christmas and summer, and that's where the market was geared toward, and the comic book market was really geared towards those, but nowadays we call them an algorithm. Um, crisis hit big blockbuster summer months, Death of Supergirl, Death of Flash. Experienced both of those when I was in Illinois, bouncing between Chicago Comic Con, flying back to San Diego Comic Con, watching the Art Adams phenomenon be be put together with these um, epic. It, it's called the Asgardian Saga, the Asgardian Saga in, in regards to the X-Men. And those two special editions, annuals that Art did are regarded as classics. They are regarded among the best of his work. And again, coupling that with the long shot stuff, and again, the, the really the spaghetti webbing that you would come to learn, uh, to know and learn from, from, from Todd McFarlane was, uh, he likes to say he popularized it. Well, it was popularized. It was created and really um, the, the spotlight was shown on the spaghetti webbing from Michael Golden, who had depicted Spider-Man on certain covers, pinups, posters for Marvel Comics. But Longshot 4, which came out in uh, Hit Store September 3rd, 1984, has She-Hulk and Longshot um, featured alongside the lead character Longshot inside the, inside the comic. And uh, fandom went crazy for that Spider-Man. And it's on the cover, it's on the interiors, the, the spaghetti webbing webs that, that you identify with Todd were popularized and um, really, really hyped fandom in the pages of Longshot number four. Art would then go do uh, a year later and, and a Spider-Man annual a, uh, in, in, in the uh, black costume. And again, the webs are all over the place. And there are people, I mean, again, the, the, for the people who think reflection covers started with that Hulk cover in 1987, and, and that's where they believe they discovered uh, reflections and, and also spaghetti webbing somehow being a creation of Todd McFarlane, you are wrong. That is erroneous. Uh, Steve Ditko even played with some spaghetti webbings, but Golden to Art Adams was where the fandom that would grow to love Todd's Spider-Man uh, was born. Somebody said the other day that a ASM 300, Amazing Spider-Man 300 is one of the most homage covers, which I believe it is easily of the, of the modern era. And in the comments below, it said, you know, thank you, Art Adams. And I got what he was saying because that pose uh, is very similar to a pose that Art Adams drew in that Spider-Man annual in the black costume and the webbing again. So it's one of those, uh, if you know, you know things, but long shot number four, Pairing Longshot with She-Hulk and with Spider-Man sent the fanboys into an even bigger frenzy. Because trust me, this Art Adams artwork was like the most addictive candy. The detail, the beautiful people, the physiques, the environments, the villains. Just, just an absolute explosion by a young talent that would echo to this day, to right now, into this blue Yeti mic. It is still being felt. Uh, other notables in the comic book world... Rocket Raccoon, after being introduced in Hulk, got his own dedicated miniseries drawn by Mike Mignola, written by the, the, the great Bill Mantlo, who had written um, just years-long uh, uh, epic runs of the Hulk, Rom, Micronauts, uh, X-Men vs. Micronauts uh, miniseries alongside Chris Claremont. Bill was a fan-favorite writer. He gave this incredible miniseries, Rocket Raccoon, sh shined the spotlight on Rocket Raccoon, who he had introduced in 
the pages of the Hulk with Mike Mignola. And that's a notable, it's a great miniseries, especially given that Guardians of the Galaxy is doing another lap in theaters and everybody loves Rocket Raccoon. A giant notable from the uh, summer of of 1985, John Byrne did a She-Hulk graphic novel. This is before the fourth wall. John had really co-opted She-Hulk, who had had her own series fail and get canceled just very roughly two years into its publication uh, in the very early 80s. And then John co-opted She-Hulk and put She-Hulk into the Fantastic Four comic and then went about creating this incredible graphic novel that he penciled and uh, it is inked by a, someone named, uh, well, not someone, an inker who was doing a ton of work for Marvel called Kim DeMolder. And John just didn't, he has not talked favorably about his results with Kim DeMolder on this uh, graphic novel as, as, as time has rolled by. But it is a fantastic accomplishment. It is a beautiful graphic novel, a beautiful color, beautiful uh, John Byrne artwork he definitely was was flexing some spectacle muscles in this she-hulk but but that's another notable um outside of obviously crisis on infinite earths and these x-men annuals you're like but rob x-men yeah x-men i I looked over every issue in in 1985 a lot of rachel from the future um some anniversary stuff uh with the hellions i mean nothing in 85 in the comic book really shook the firmament of the x-men universe not to the level of what happened with the Asgardian Wars and that particular popularity. So you got Crisis, you got Secret Wars 2, which was by and large a letdown to fandom uh, who, who really just didn't understand the approach this time around. And, and Crisis was so big, it just left everything else in its wake at DC. But it was the beginning that the, the momentum behind Crisis would carry into 86 as Byrne does Superman coming out of Crisis, gives you the reboot. Dark Knight is by Frank Miller. George Perez signs on to do Wonder Woman. I mean, things were changing. Watchmen comes. I mean, DC Crisis was really like the bulldozer that was tearing it all down and, and paving the way for all the greatness that would follow at DC Comics. And, and again, Marvel, still number one, even with kind of, I think, a lot of, of their giant esteemed talent who, was, who, who were in the last legs on all of their big historical runs. 1985 was a crazy great year for comics. I loved, I loved discussing it and sharing the momentum and, and those long drives to get those comics uh, and, and, and the comfort. It, it's really the comfort that comics can give you in your times of just loneliness, uh, trauma, uh, boredom. Comics can just rise you up, inspire you, give you that kick that just separates you. and. Uh, and, and gives you that kind of, you know, boost of, of creative energy or puts that smile on your face, you know? And, and that summer was, was just spectacular because, again, the giant engine was crisis. And then Marvel was just hitting you with some cool, like, She-Hulk graphic novel, the Art Adams experience, Mike Mignola on Rocket Raccoon, a whole lot of cool notables that would carry you because those X-Men annuals, like, the Asgardian War comes out in October. And by that time, I mean, you're, you're about to wrap up 1985, go into the holiday season and reset everything for 86. So those are, for me, the highlights of 1985 in the comic book world. Uh, again, Todd McFarlane joining Infinity Inc., starting to, you know, exercise his influence and become a known man in comics. 85's got a lot of cool stuff going on in it. And, uh, and again, uh, it, is, it is 
basically about 16, 17 months before I would make my entry into the comic book world. And I remember as a professional, and I remember, you know, uh, just the great times I had with my, my buddies, uh, who I hook up with, who I hooked up with from the Teen Titan fan club in Chicago and, and, and post convention unpacking all the special comics we got in the posters and the pins. And, um, there really weren't variant special convention editions at that, at that time, but just breaking out and, 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 you know, sharing what sketches we got. My budget was a lot more limited back then. So I was only limited to a very few sketches from a Jerry, Jerry Ordway, from Dan Jurgens, from the guys that I really liked at DC. Marvel didn't show as strong at, at Chicago as DC did. And Marvel maybe had a, a little stronger presence at San Diego Comic-Con 1985. And again, 85, the, the best thing, I took my wife there during the pandemic. We're, we are still in the old convention center that is now like a community center or, or whatever. It, it is not where San Diego Comic-Con is held. So it is not the building on the water that we, we all know and love that, that's been around since 91. This is the older convention uh, center, which was a blast, everything under one roof. It felt like the biggest convention in the world because at that time it, it still was, but it was nothing like what it was about to become. So again, George Perez, Art Adams, artistic boom, you know, presences from 1985 in the world of comic books. As far as the world of movies, the movies of it, 1985. I mean, it, it was a very interesting year. And, and again, for me, I was always a summer movie guy. And I went with my friends back, you know, in Southern California growing up. I always doubled up and went with friends to Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back, obviously summer of 1977, Star Wars, um, whether it was Goonies, uh, you know, right, right, right before I, I, I flew out, uh, the, the Temple of Doom the year before, uh, the Star Trek films, always a huge, avid summer, summer movie goer. And now I was in Illinois and Waukegan, Illinois, which also is where I learned that, that people from the Midwest say, pap, soda pap. Um, cause I was like, we walked into this very nice lady's house who was a friend of my parents. They were introducing me and, you know, Robbie, they call me Robbie is here for the summer. And she goes, you want a pap? And I go, what, what'd you just say to me? You want a pap? You want a pap? And, and then she said, she looked at me cause I, she, I think she processed that I wasn't connecting and she says, a soda pap. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's saying, do I want a pop? And I'm like in Southern California. And it's true. It was like, I'd like a Pepsi. I, I'd like a, I'd like a Sprite. I'd like a seven up. I'd like an orange. And she led me to the refrigerator and there was orange soda and obviously, you know, seven up and, 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 and Pepsi. And so I'm like, oh, wow. And that's why I realized, you know, everyone goes, you want a pap? And trust me, that was one of a hundred instances that I would experience in, as my, my, my Southern California virgin ears encountered, you know, the Midwest of 1985. Uh, I discovered a theater adjacent to the mall that was about a 15 minute drive. And on the weekends, on, on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, because now my mom is home, not working uh, Monday through Friday, I would be able to drive into town, drive into the mall and, and, and see these movies. Now, before I graduated, the biggest movie of, of spring and summer that everyone was anticipating was the sequel to First Blood. Rambo, First Blood 2 was a giant May release. 
And I remember working every angle I had at my local comic store to get three of the movie posters because that movie poster with Rambo in that kick-ass squat pose with that gun was an image that was just on fire and everybody wanted it. And I told two of my buddies at in, in high school that I could get those posters for them. And sure enough, uh, right as the movie came out, my comic store delivered. He had a great contact for movie posters and I was able to give those to my friends. But I saw Rambo First Blood Part 2 uh, the weekend it came out because we were all big giant First Blood fans from a couple years earlier. And First Blood really was a small movie by Stallone that blew up. Uh, it just connected with audience. It, it was really closest to like the modern day John Wick phenomenon with Keanu making this small but very violent action oriented film um, with, with a component of sorrow to it. And then boom, it exploded and uh, and just became like this this giant mega hit for Stallone. Of course, he he had to follow it up and he did. And, and, and Rambo first blood part two was released into the, 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 the cinemas, uh, <clears throat> on May 22nd, it would go on to be the second biggest movie of, of 1985, but you all know who, the number one movie of 1985 was one that no one saw coming. And we've all seen the, the incredible history of how they filmed a great portion of the film for, for several weeks with an actor named Eric Stoltz before replacing him with an actor who was like the biggest star on television. And he, and you're going to see his name again when we get to the big TV shows of 1985. But Michael J. Fox is the marquee uh, centerpiece of this Steven Spielberg produced uh, Amblin Studios, uh, you know, back to the future. Back to the future. I mean... You want to talk about a movie that just took people by storm. I wandered into the cinema, having been pulled by the great ads that they had cut that were on TV. And I'm going to tell you, Back to the Future really wasn't on my radar, but kudos to director Robert Zemeckis, who again uh, worked alongside his buddy who produced it, Steven Spielberg. Kudos to Robert Zemeckis. Back to the Future is one of those rare, perfect films. Everything works. There is no fat, no flaw. Every joke lands. Um, the effects are fantastic. The humor is top notch. The char- the charisma from everybody is next level. And I think it was so offbeat. It was just so offbeat that this '80s kid would go back uh, to when his parents were, you know, teenagers, and somehow have to pull off this this uh, this 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 feat of 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 getting them together so that the future would hold and Marty McFly would, you know, survive and and oh my gosh, Chris Lloyd as as Doc. I mean, it was uh it was phenomenal and I and and I sat with this audience, you know, on that Saturday, that opening weekend of Back to the Future in Waukegan, Illinois, and it was just floored. I mean, it was elbow to elbow. Word of mouth was early on this thing. It was the July 4th weekend. And Back to the Future just exploded. And you guys, it played and played and played and played. And it played through the fall and the early winter. And it was the number one movie of 1985. I am certain that you have great memories seeing Back to the Future. Maybe you saw it in the theater. Maybe you got it on a VHS. Maybe you've watched it recently, uh, you know, on on a 4K DVD. Uh, I'm not really sure which of the, is it Peacock that has it maybe in its library? But so Back to the Future just ruled the summer. Huey Lewis and the News with their big song, um, you know, just uh, got got a got a great kick in regards to to the the, the soundtrack. 
Uh, Back to the Future just set Michael Jackson. <laughs> I was close. Michael J. Fox set his career like at like level 10. Like he took it to an all new limit. Interestingly enough, the number three movie of 1985 is a movie that was released during the holidays of 1984. But again, this was the crowning achievement of one Eddie Murphy. He had dazzled my generation of youth on Saturday Night Live for one single season, then became a giant phenomenon, did Trading Places, uh, did 48 Hours. So he did two, basically, a a dedicated comedic buddy movie with Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places and then with Nick Nolte prior to that in 48 Hours in a buddy cop comedy and then exploded with Beverly Hills Cop. My buddy worked at a, he was an usher at the local cinema and he'd always tell me, Rob, just come on and, and, First, he had to convince me to see it. I was just so busy that I hadn't gotten around to seeing, seeing Beverly Hills Cop. And then once I did see it, right at, at the end of 84, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I went back and saw it again and again and again. I literally just rewatched this with Joy a few months ago. Uh, I don't believe she had ever seen the entirety of Beverly Hills Cop. And we were both just cracking up. It is a great time capsule, a snap of the 80s at that time in history. But it works. Again, everything lands. The humor is still funny. The plot is still great. The action, the interact, the, the, the charisma of the characters. Uh, I mean, Eddie Murphy is just a tour de force, but Beverly Hills Cop ran at such a high burn in terms of gross that it was the number three movie of 1985, even though it was released in 84. This was really the summer of Stallone, given that Rocky IV was released uh, in, at Christmas time and it landed number four. And, you know, everybody got up for Drago. So really, everybody was so excited. Stallone was was Rambo on May 22nd, and then he was Rocky again, the beloved Rocky, on November 27th, both released in 1985. And let me tell you something. Saw opening night with my buddies, all my uh, basically college-age buddies, because I'm back in Southern California. We, we, we made sure that we were there. It came out, you know, Thanksgiving weekend. We wanted to, you know, consume it. And it came out, I believe, a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. That 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 night, and we were just roaring with the crowd as Rocky went toe to toe with Drago again. Saw a Rocky uh, uh, marathon right before Creed Three came out, and rewatched this for the first time in years. And again, uh, you know, very dated in its depiction of America and the USSR. And just if you've ever watched my whatnot shows, I, I will go into a a, a Rocky Drago uh, interaction that that I find at least I find very. <laughs> Very entertaining because I remember it very well. And Brigitte Brigitte Nielsen, who would go on to marry Stallone and and be called Gita, um, in in her in her tremendous performance in 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 Rocky Four, because you are so very good and we are so very bad. Um, yeah, she she her her line reads in in Rocky Four are 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 one for the ages. So Cocoon came out summer '85, and again another Amblin Steven Spielberg production. Uh, just just took took the, the consciousness, put Ron Howard on the map as a director, uh, just took everybody by storm. Huge movie, number five of, of, of the year. Uh, an IMAX documentary, The Dream is Alive, logs in at number six. Witness Harrison Ford's uh, kick-ass uh, undercover Amish drama, Witness, uh, lodged Number seven, a big hit for him. The Goonies, which I saw right before I flew back to Illinois, uh, came in at number eight for the year. Police Academy 2, 
uh, which that that series literally had some of the longest legs uh, in, 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 in the history of comedic cinema. And then the re-release of Fantasia logged in at number two. Just missing out on the top 10 was our good buddy Roger Moore as James Bond in A View to a Kill. And number 12 was Chevy Chase's sequel to Vacation, National Lampoon's European Vacation. So, so that is your top 10 uh, films of, of, uh, of 1985. The, the, I mean, really fun year, really a great mix of comedy adventure, a huge year for Spielberg, uh, in regards to as a production entity and his emblem entertainment and his, his stamp on, uh, on, on the culture in regards to, to his influence in, in the world of sci-fi and fantasy and extending beyond just being, you know, having to direct everything and, and bringing so many of his great and talented buddies in like like Robert Zemeckis and kind of, you know, shepherding their experiences. Uh, just just a really fun, fun year's worth of really kick-ass movies. And obviously Stallone, the two S's, Stallone and Spielberg really were the, 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 ones, the, uh, the ones to watch in regards to, to that incredible year. You know, I, I, I normally give the grossest, so let me go ahead and do that. Uh, Back to the Future made $190 million. Beverly Hills Cop made $157 uh, $157 million, but some of that has the 1984 grosses in it because uh, that, 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 if you put the 84 gross, it jumps. But if you, you just stay with dedicated $1985, Rambo uh, at $150 million is lodged as number two. Rocky IV, $89 million. Cocoon, $76 million. Witness, Sixty-eight million dollars. The Goonies, sixty-one million dollars. Police Academy, two fifty-five million dollars, which is a lot of money in nineteen eighty-five. Uh, and and then you've got, uh, like I said, a View to a Kill at fifty million. Uh, National Lampoon, forty-nine million. European Vacation. So, got to give a uh, a shout out to the Breakfast Club, which uh, was released in very very early February of of of. Uh, 1985, which, which at least makes the top 15. The last movie that I saw in Illinois before I flew home, and I saw Back to the Future, I saw Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Where is that in this list? 19, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome made $36 million. And then Teen Wolf. Teen, Teen Wolf and Pee-wee's Big Adventure were the last movies I saw. And Pee-wee was not playing at the mall uh, that, I was, that I was attending to. Because again, Back to the Future would just keep movies out. It was, it was just in theaters the entire summer. I went the Saturday of, of Beyond Thunderdome uh, and, and watched that and loved it because I'm a huge Mad Max guy and I love Master Blasta and, and Tina Turner and, you know, she was all over MTV at the time. Huge deal. Uh, it, 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 it's it's um, not everybody's favorite edition of Mad Max, the Beyond Thunderdome edition, but boy, is it a blast. I, uh, it is a master blaster, if I can be so corny, and I, and I just was. But it's funny, Teen Wolf and, and Pee Wee were both playing at smaller... Uh, film houses that I had to drive a little further. Pee Wee Herman, I saw it of just curiosity and went back and saw it three times in that theater. And then upon coming back to, to, to Southern California, some of my friends hadn't seen it. And I'm like, you got to see this movie. And again, you guys, I did. I saw, I saw a lot of movies like, like so many of you in 1985, but for me, they were coping. I was just a guy who spent the majority of June, July, August, and the early part of September in a place I'd never been before. And so movies and comics really comforted me. Now, another giant uh, 1985 moment that is neither movie nor comic book was Live Aid. Uh, Live Aid was the giant 
you know, uh, event that happened in both, you know, London and New York, which simultaneously had all of these crazy great uh, rock acts. And I'm telling you, I was parked in front of my uh, TV, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that July 13th watching Live Aid uh, as, as it was uh, <clears throat> pulled off and it was a benefit concert and it, you know, late 1984, you got, we are, um, you, you've got, uh, uh, you know, feed the world with Band-Aid and then all the American artists uh, released, we are the world, their follow-up to what had started with, with the Band-Aid talent, with all the European, the, the English acts that put together that killer, you hear it every, every Christmas, you know, uh, uh, feed the world. And it's got Duran Duran guys, Spandau Ballet, U2. It's got Sting. It's got Bananarama. They're all, you know, Culture Club. They're all involved in that. Well, the Americans did their, um, you know, their, their their version of that following the Grammys that year. They all gathered. And you've seen the video. Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, uh, all the big names at the time. And and uh, Diana Ross, Kenny, Ro- <laughs> Kenny Rogers, Hall and Oates. I mean, you, you see them all. Well, Live Aid was the culmination of all of this charity uh and uh 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 you know benefit concerts it, it, it was the ultimate event that 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 fed off those two and it was from Wembley Stadium in London and it was from JFK Stadium in Philadelphia excuse me not New York Philadelphia and every manner of act I was glued to it that was the summer of 85 Live Aid was a giant deal and if you've seen the Freddie Mercury biopic you've seen them depict how queen kind of came out and owned like they had kind of fallen from favor in terms of the top of the charts but they took their moment their spotlight on the stage and owned it and freddie mercury just was as charismatic as you can possibly imagine phil phil uh phil collins famously jetted between both uh really really fun stuff um but but i mean you you had everybody from adam ant spandau ballet Elvis Costello, you know, Sting, uh, Phil Collins, Paul Young, U2, you know, David Bowie, Queen, The Who, Elton John, you had Paul McCartney. Um, I mean, you had just an incredible uh, 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 array of of talent from the London performance. Uh, over over in, in, in the Philadelphia, you had Billy, Billy Ocean, you had Run DMC, you had Rick Springfield, Ario Speedwagon. You had Brian Adams, the Beach Boys, George Thorogood, the Simple Simple Minds, the Pretenders. You had Madonna. You had Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker Cars. You had uh, the Thompson Twins. Again, Phil Collins because he flew to Philadelphia. The one guy that that, that did both. You had Duran Duran in Philadelphia. You had Hall and Oates. You had Mick Jagger, um, Bob Dylan. Just a crazy. I mean, you cannot mention '85 without Live Aid. It still resonates. Um, but we've done movies, we've done comic books, we've done Live Aid. Now, what was the top TV shows of 1985? Well, I am so happy to share that with you. And if you would have told me that this guy would be in, was going to do time, was going to do time in prison uh, for being a, a good God, for drugging women and doing awful things, uh, Bill Cosby reigned. His Cosby show in the from like 84 through 87 was just a monster of ratings he captivated all of us with his unique with his unique humor his breakout um jokes uh the incredible charisma and of the of the family the huxtables 
The Cosby Show was the number one show on television in 1985, followed closely, like literally only um, 2 million behind it. And I know that's a lot, but they were both in the 30 million range, 33 million and 31 million for Family Ties, 33 million for The Cosby Show, 31 million for Family Ties, starring Michael Fox, who, Michael J. Fox, who broke out as Alex Keaton and, uh, and, and had captivated us that summer in Back to the Future as Marty McFly. So Family Ties and Cosby Show were um, duking it out. Family Ties was on Thursdays and then later went to Sundays. But that, that Thursday night lineup that would carry through the 90s and have Seinfeld and, and Friends and Cheers was really birthed here because Cheers is in the top five in regards to, um, again, being a hit in 1985. So you've got Murder, She Wrote, uh, which I, I literally have never seen a single episode, but was a powerhouse of the 80s. Murder, She Wrote was number three. 60 Minutes, a perennial to this day. Uh, that, that I mean, literally the most popular news magazine in the history of planet Earth in, in the US of A as, as far as I've been alive. 60 Minutes, number four. Cheers, number five. ABC's um, uh, Dallas is number six. Sorry, CBS. And then ABC gets its um, one of two entries in the top 10 with Dynasty, which was all the rage. And so many soapy cliffhangers. And uh, when I came back, I lived with one of my buddies for four months. I rented a room from him and his family. And his mom talked about Dynasty day in, day out, September 85, up until I moved out in early December. Dynasty uh, is number seven show in, 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 uh, on television in 1985. The Golden Girls, number eight, Miami Vice. Number nine, and who's the boss, if you could believe it? Tony Danza, who's the boss? I mean, Monday Night Football is number 15. We have, when people tell you that football has exploded in the last 25 years, know that that is 100% the case. Monday Night Football in 1985, and that's the Chicago Bears. I mean, teams that were good in, in 85, the Bears, the Giants, the Rams, the Cowboys, big Washington Redskins. The, these teams were, you know, big draws. Monday Night Football would get, would place 15. Kate and Allie did better than Monday Night Football. Highway to Heaven did better than football. Night Court at number 11 did better. The Sunday Night, the CBS Sunday Night movie at number 12 did better than number 15, Monday Night Football. Football would explode in the early 2000s to become this mega, megalith of entertainment. Uh, but yeah, Cosby Show, Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, 60 Minutes, and Cheers make up your top five. TV shows of the top 10 that I read to you in 1985. And then what in the heck were we even listening to? I'm going to tell you as far as singles, we're just going to do singles, billboards, hot 100, Deadpool fans will love this. Careless Whisper by George Michael. It was playing all spring and uh, summer of 1985 as I graduated the prom, everything. George Michael, Careless Whisper. It was part of the Wham album and later obviously came out the George not only played every instrument, but sang every vo vocal and was giving his friend Andrew Ridgely the mother of all hookups. But Careless Whisper was number one. Like a Virgin, Madonna, number two. Wham, again, number three, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Number four, Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is. Number five, Chaka Khan was I Feel For You. Number six, Daryl Hall, John Oates, Hall & Oates, Out of Touch. Number seven, Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Number eight, the Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, The Earworm of All Time. Number nine, Crazy for You. 
uh, by Madonna. And number 10, Ahas, Take On Me. You can tell me they're not a one-hit wonder. I Come on, Take On Me, maybe the biggest one-hit wonder song of all time. Don't throw rocks at my podcast. Uh, so yeah, Careless Whisper, Like a Virgin, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. I want to know what love is, and I feel for you are the top five of the top 10 songs of 1985. I'm going to tell you, being 17 in 1985, I turned 18 October of 85, so I'm, I'm the majority of whatever calendar year it is, I am, you know, uh, I, I don't turn until the end of that year. So 17 years old, 1985, for me, was filled with all sorts of crazy, um, you know, surprises, adventure a dash of trauma. My dad made a full recovery. Thank God they came back to Southern California around uh, January of 1986. And we started a new chapter in our lives. But, uh, you know, thank God that that incredible technology and that um, doctor was so skilled and we saw how far technology had come. So for my own family, 85 was was a huge year of ups and downs, but that's the triumph that will live with me the most. And then you had this incredible year, uh, the biggest, most respected, uh, most well-executed comic book crossover in the history of, of, of comic books. Nothing has even come close. You can just stop. Don't even try with Civil War. It's not the same. It was not the same. I lived through both uh, the captivating, you know, knock you off your socks, 12 issues. And again, one of those is double-sized. Two of those, issue six and 12 are double-sized by George. That guy just rolled up his his sleeves and just went to work. And we were the beneficiaries of it. Art Adams broke out. His influence is still uh, being felt today. Back to the Future, Rambo First Blood. Would, would, I mean, could you believe there'd, there'd be so many more Rambos? I mean, Stallone really tapped into something and the return of the beloved Rocky. Uh, you know, Cocoon, Beverly Hills Cop, uh, just so many great movies in 1985. So many, so much, so much. I mean, w- when you think of how Creed has was born uh so much of of Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and then he pulled so much from and continues to pull from and may continue to you know pull even further from Rocky 4 i mean the resonance of, of Sylvester Stallone cannot be measured and then of course the music the television 85 was a kickass year it was definitely worth peeling it back and examining it and going through the details and examining all of the ways that it impacts us to this day so here's to 1985 and it was just an absolute blast revisiting that with you. So at the end of each and every episode, I read your reviews, the, 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 the messages and the positive affirmations you put down for the show. And we appreciate it so much. But today I'm going to put it off a little bit. I'm going to change things up a little bit. And I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm going to first switch it up and tell you that right now, uh, your requests, the most requested thing that you have um put forth for me in the last several years, I'm, I'm going like five, six years, is Rob, when are you going to do a CGC signing? When are you going to do a private in-house signing with CGC? I am doing that private in-house signing with CGC later this summer. You need to turn in your books to CGC right now. Go to the CGC website. They are the premier, uh, you know, the, the, the world leader in grading of comic books. And we're doing cards. We are also doing cards. Deadpool cards, X-Force cards, Marvel Universe cards, whatever I've drawn, characters I've created, send those in. Go to CGC, go to their website, uh, look up the news on Rob Liefeld, click on the links, follow the prompts, and prepare your books, your key issues, whatever you would like me to sign. This is it. This summer, me and and CGC, we are going to rock and roll. We are going to get this done. 
So you, the submissions are open till late July. Get on it now. Be at the front of the line. I've heard about people, uh, you know, <laughs> being at the end and getting the, 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 the not great signature or the people getting the books later. You want to get your books first. You want to be the first ones sent to, um, to, to, to all of the incredible graders as they prepare your books. And, and I already know I'm going to be there for many days, according to CGC, with what they've already um, received. So get that stuff in. I'll be there for weeks if I have to. I cannot wait to, um, to sign your books. And the earlier, the better. So get that stuff in. Get that to CGC for my private in-house signing that I'm doing. I will sign anything. There is nothing off limits. Send it to me. Trading card, comic book. I look forward to signing it. Now, on social media, I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, the full name. You know, those blue, blue checks are all gone. I don't have one. I'm not, I, have, I have not put forth payment for one. I have not been gifted one. I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. You can reach me on Twitter. I love talking with you guys back and forth. All of the engagement is so fun. So I look forward to seeing you on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld. It is photos of my comic book work, my food, my hang time with my family, the stuff that I like, maybe old retro stuff. Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. I have a blue check over there, which only signifies that you are indeed talking to the real Rob Liefeld. I love seeing all of your guys' photos, reading your comments, your DMs. Uh, thank you for checking my stories out and, and, and anything that I post. So follow me at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I look forward to seeing you there. We have a group on Facebook. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. A lot of the discussions that we have here, we continue there. We have dedicated posts about the show. We also share art comics. We have art contests, drawing contests. Um, that people participate in that are only getting more busier and cooler and great talent. Uh, I dig up old uh, drawings, pencils, inks, try and show you character sketches. It's a really interactive group. We would love to have you there. Either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will click you through. We are the administrators, and that's how you know you've got to the right place. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond is our group on Facebook. We would love to have you join us. There's an app called Whatnot. It is the number one comic book, toy, trading card, collectible, sports um, app. Um, you want you want a jersey. You, you, you want some sports kicks. You want uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon. Uh, you, you, you want modern comics, bronze comics, Silver Age comics. You want graded comics, signed items. Whatnot is the place for you. I am there twice a week. Right now we are running Wednesdays and Fridays. Follow me at Rob Liefeld on whatnot. Download the app. There is a million different stores for you to interact with. All different pricing, all different manner. The stuff you want is there. You can make requests. I am live on my shows. When I go live, I am talking right to you. I am plopped down on a very brown beanbag. I, I, have, I, have, I have valued the comfort of, of sitting there and talking to you for two plus hours. And I share with you my exclusives. We have some brand new whatnot exclusives that we'll have here just an all new allotment of them in just a few weeks. But right now I have a whatnot Deadpool New Mutants uh, exclusive. I have a Brigade from my Extreme Studios Image Comics series Brigade exclusive. I have a Spider-Man. I did an amazing Spider-Man New Mutants 98 uh, homage uh, whatnot exclusive with whatnot. We've done a bunch of exclusive content with them. You can only find it through me on the app while I'm live during my live stream. I also have original art. Uh, signed cards, 
I have custom logos. You find out what a blood splatter life L chisel is. Yes, I know that is a crazy term to listen to. Find out what a drop shadow Liefeld chisel is. Um, sign Funko, sign toys. We've got it all. Follow me on whatnot. Be part of my live streams. I look forward to seeing you there. A lot of people do say it's an extension of this podcast. I'm a little more unhinged. It's it's this podcast is always just so you, just so you know. I always do this podcast very early, uh, very early in the morning, or that when the birds are chirping at 4:30 a.m. And the podcast is done later, so you are getting beat, tired, worn out, semi grumpy, Rob. And uh, I'm not, I'm not even really sure what that experience is like from your end, but I invite you to give it a try over on whatnot. Follow me at Rob Liefeld. So here's the deal. Here is um the the review that was left for us that we're going to read this this week we so appreciate it helps us stand out on the platform stand out in this very um busy very crowded podcast world i appreciate you so much all the listening all of the promotion that you do of our show this is from a gentleman named scoop flow scoop flow gives us five stars his other name that he has logged this is branticus branticus b-r-a-n T-I-C-U-S, Branticus. He gives us five stars. He calls the show legendary. He says, it is always a great treat to see a fresh episode of Rob Observations in the library. If you are a fan of comic books, this is the podcast for you. With so much history and passion for the comic book world, you cannot help but dig into your long boxes. Bonus is the best channel you're going to find on whatnot. The RobCon is real. And if you want to get your hands on some amazing artwork, published pages, remark Funkos, or some swag straight from the Liefeld Holy Storage Unit treasure, comboed with a chisel, a drop shadow chisel, or a blood splatter chisel, then do yourself a kindness and check out Rob's live streams on whatnot. Rob, thank you for everything that you're doing. <laughs> a pat on the back to you. This says, hats off. To Dave, who who is um, my partner in the in the in the broadcast, he he's alongside me. Uh, hats off to Dave for the best shipping and handling. Cheers to all of you. Scoop flow. Um, when he calls it the Robcon, that's what the people who watch the whatnot live stream uh, call. Because again, I'm not going out. One thing you understand: I have not been out to a convention for nine months. I have no plans to be appear at any conventions. I'm doing one single store appearance to promote. Uh, Deadpool Bad Blood number one, which comes out on June 7th. And if you haven't let your retailer, you need to, if you, if you have not let your retailer know that you need that comic, you need to now. Uh, retailers, as we've talked on the show, are more conservative than ever. They need to be. They need to really balance those numbers. They need to know if you want something so that they don't sell out. So please let them know. June 7th, Deadpool Bad Blood, Batter Blood. Batter Blood number one is arriving. It is going to kick off a giant summer fall of kick-ass Deadpool adventure. I am so excited to have you along for the ride. Thank you, Scoop Flow. Thank you for that so generous, so generous review. I am so appreciative of you. Thank you. And uh, everybody who writes a review, the fact that you um, type out that on your on your phone, on your computer, and you send it in means the world to us. It means the world of the show. Thank you. And uh, look, we are at the end of this show, and it is important for you to know that I care about you and your well-being and your physical, your emotional, your spiritual, and your mental health. Uh, I, I Literally, I'm, I'm opening the cupboard. I'm getting out uh, some coffee mix. And I sit there the other day and I'm like, I can't believe the pandemic was three years ago. I can't believe how it upended our lives. I can't believe uh, the toll it took on my family and on my kids. They're still getting over some of the mental stress and the emotional drama and trauma of that time. That, that's when this podcast was born. That's when I took to this mic as my own kind of coping mechanism. And you guys have come along with me. 
And I hope for you, just as I talked about driving an hour each way to get comic books and how they restored my soul and how they give me, gave me like, uh, uh, basically they were my friend. They were my company. And yeah, that sounds goofy. I'll say it again. They were my friend. This comic book was my friend. It was those adventures. I escaped into those pages. And, uh, I have been told to my face by, I would say, a couple hundred different comic book creators that listen to this show, that they listen and, and, and they are entertained, entertained and informed. And I want to talk to you guys right now. Thank you for doing comic books. Thank you for writing them, for drawing them, for creating them, for publishing them, and for making them for the audience to enjoy, for your audience, for the comic book world to enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for doing what you do. And I know so many of you are working hard at making comic books and making entertainment. And and some of you are seeing that stuff adapted and, and, and it's going to become the streaming and the movies and the stuff like I've, I've talked about that, that takes us away, that gives us the escape. And and we as a, as a mutual audience, I'm just rooting for you. You know, I also want to, want to pair that with some cupcakes, some, some, some peanut butter cups. They're putting cereal into those peanut butter cups now. Uh, you know, Hershey bars, potato chips. I'm a junk food addict. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I, I do like a five-star meal, but I, I may like uh, 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 junk food j- just as much, just as equally. So you guys get comics, get novels, get a book, get a streaming uh, uh, show, get a movie and relax, kick your feet up at least once this week and just let it take you away. Let it, you know, relax you and, and leave your stress and your, and your trauma behind. I'm rooting for you. Um, fist bump, spend some time, spend some time with family and friends. Obviously that is my favorite thing to do. Have that shared experience. I'm rooting for you. I am so thankful for you. Uh, I do hope very sincerely that you swing back by for the next episode. I'll be here waiting. We absolutely, most certainly, and inevitably are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 